Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session. Um, it's it's like a, a big gap in my heart when we miss a day. So I'm sorry that we missed Tuesday, but alhamdulillah, always happy to be here. Um, I wanted to just call attention to um, an amazing khutbah from yesterday. Um, a lot of times I, I don't, well most times, I don't really know what Sheikh is going to talk about. And I don't know, like when I, when I sit and I start hearing, I don't know if it's the troublemaker in me or maybe the social justice part of me. But when I, I start hearing like what he is laying out, I get very excited. And yesterday was, I mean, it was a, a very challenging and controversial khutbah, but an extremely important khutbah. And I got really excited because I imagined that probably no other Friday khutbah would be talking about this topic. And so it's about um, abuse, about sexual abuse, about the, our Islamic community, how um, a lot of people are silent. Um, about what happens to the rights of the, the victims. Um, and clearly, you know, we um, had uh, recently an issue um, within our Muslim community about someone who um, had committed some alleged abuse um, against women, but after he passed away, um, how there was this strange dynamic of people honoring him, but then a lot of women feeling very, you know, not sure how to deal with this issue because they recognized that someone who had uh, been allegedly accused of abuse was now getting honored with as if all of that other stuff was just swept away to the side and it was supposed to be understood that this is the Islamic way of handling this situation. So Sheikh very boldly and um, uh, addressed this issue through you know the technical aspects and also the moral aspects. And so if you didn't have a chance to watch it, I would highly encourage um, you to go back and I know we're sharing some clips from it on social media so um, it's just you know it's one of those things where it makes me um, really um, sad to hear the topic but proud at the same time because you know when you hear um, the the truth and the evidence and the, the morality that should go um, behind how we as Muslims should react to the situation um, it's it's a very um, cleansing and beautiful experience it's empowering um, and I think there's been a lot of confusion about how we should respond to these types of situations. So I think these types of khutbahs are really what set us apart because I don't think most people want to even touch this topic in any Islamic space, much less delve in and talk about um, you know, the hadith that people are throwing around to support certain positions um, and also you know, to address like, certain attitudes that people have in these situations. So it's a very um, important education. Um, and I think it also is probably, you know, very comforting for, for people who have been victims in those situations. And it helps, I think, to align the community around, you know, what is the moral stance um, in these very difficult situations. So um, when, when we cover topics that are unique and, and so important and controversial, it makes me very proud to be part of the Suli Institute and very grateful to um, to the sheikh who's uh, brave enough um, to, to tackle this topic. So um, I, again, uh, would encourage you to watch it if you haven't. Um, and you know, it's, it's really lovely because I've noticed an uptick in, um, you know, really beautiful messages that we receive. Um, and it's, actually, let me go back and say something about yesterday's khutbah. Um, what was interesting is I had to leave partway through because I had to go pick up our son. But so I continued to watch on the live stream and I happened to see some of the comments that people were posting. Um, and there were a lot of, you know, very encouraging, you know, people were excited to hear um, this topic being raised. But then someone from India also wrote and was angry and said, you know, how could it be that you are continually talking about 
these feminist issues, you know, why aren't you talking about this thing that happened in India on this farm where, you know, it affected a hundred families, you know, and it, it's sort of interesting because on the one hand, I felt like, you know, gosh, this is such a brave and bold khutbah. The fact that it's even out there is something that is stunning and unique and unusual. And to have an uh, angry reaction about, um, you know, why are you continuing to push this feminist agenda? Well, abuse obviously happens to both men and women, and it's not a point of feminist agenda. But then, um, you know, and then also, um, you know, it's interesting because this person was angry that we weren't talking about something that was clearly important to them. But then I thought, you know, this is actually really beautiful because it's like someone who came to our site, to the Suli site, looking for, you know, Sheikh to speak about an injustice, you know, and it's, you know, we're in America, we're not in India, we're not necessarily, you know, I know Sheikh is actually very aware of issues around the world, but to have an expectation to come to an institute, a khutbah, and say, why aren't you speaking about this issue in India, is kind of out there. But in a sense, it's like, wow, okay, you came all the way from there um, to raise this issue because you felt like you would get, you know, a just point of view. And I think that's beautiful, you know, that it's from clearly around the world and, you know, it was um, someplace where they felt they could get, you know, someone with a bold voice. So, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Um, but it, uh, to me, it's a very positive sign. Um, but anyway, I am getting so many um, emails from people um, that are, you know, I've shared some here before about how beautiful they are because people really write about how what they, you know, they come across the Sui Institute, they find what we're doing and that it has really been life transforming for them. A lot of people have been struggling with their faith. Um, they, you know, are so overjoyed to hear someone speaking in a way that, you know, they connect with. Um, and it kind of comes back to like what the Sheikh said at the end of the khutbah yesterday, which is, this is what truth sounds like, you know, and I think that that is such a beautiful, um, just, you know, short statement for, I think, one of the ways that we make a difference. I feel like when people hear truth, it touches them, you know, in a very deep way, they recognize it from their soul. And that's why it really hits. And um, when you hear that, it's, it's just, you know, it's a feeling like no other. I think people, they can feel when, you know, you can feel when you're hearing BS. You can, you can he you know, feel it viscerally when you're, you're hearing someone cutting corners or, you know, someone who just doesn't really quite know what they're saying or, you know, hypocrisy. You know, people have a sensor for that, but they also have a very strong sensor for truth. And so I think when, when you know, what, what we do touches that is it's really powerful. And so I'm really grateful that, um, the shift continues to be, you know, really bold and, um, you know, fearless with the truth. So please share the message with other people. I know, um, you know, abuse is one of these things that touches every family, um, every friend group, um, everyone in the Islamic community in one way, shape, or form. I think that this was an incredible, you know, powerful, enlightening, and liberating khutbah that can give a lot of people comfort and direction. So please share it with others. and. Uh, and enjoy it. So, I mean, not enjoy it, but learn from it. <laughs> so, thank you, and I'm so excited. Um, we, we now, actually, this is interesting, this is going to be the first Medinan Sura that we're covering. So, we have one uh, Meccan Sura that we didn't cover. We all were, like, thinking that maybe that would be what we covered today, but upon prayer, it's like, no, welcome to Medina. So, <laughs> looking forward to an amazing session. والحمد لله رب العالمين سبحان الله العلي العظيم والصلاة والسلام على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين
اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقهوا قولي يا رب العالمين. So inshallah today we talk about Surah Al-Insan. And this surah, as although it's fairly short, but as we will see, it it has a a powerful message to deliver. But first, let's situate the surah. Uh, surah al-Insan is one of the surah that actually uh, difficult to place. Um, so we we know that uh, although eventually the consensus was to. Uh, the consensus was that uh, the, the, the surah is named, titled Surah Al-Insan, or um, which is, translates basically human beings or, or, or humans. Uh, it was for, there were, uh, in circulations where proposed names, other names for the surah, like Surah Al-Dahr, um, which would roughly translate as the uh, means the time or um, uh, or surat al-abrar, uh, uh, which al-abrar would roughly translate as pious, the pious. Um, and there were other a couple of other proposed names of the shura or at least in circulations other used ways or other ways of, of, of calling the surah and naming the surah but eventually a, a consensus emerged that it be known as surah al-insan and when you study the way they are proposed names for a surah, and uh, although we don't get very detailed reports about, you know, how a proposal emerges, um, we can trace it quite often to certain people in certain regions. Um, but we're dealing with very early Islamic history, and when you deal with very early Islamic history, you don't often get a very extensive uh, written record. But it gives you a sense of at least how the early community of Muslims um, took the essential import of the surah. And I think, in fact, when you consider what the surah is saying, it is said it's probably the most appropriate title for the surah. Simply humans. 
But Grace was mentioning that this is the first Medinian surah, um, and this is actually a, another controversial issue. Um, so most authorities say that Surah Al-Insan um, is Medinian. And the authorities that say that it is Medinian, that it was revealed in Medina, uh, are, most of them are from the second generation of Quranic commentators like Mujahid, uh, Qutada, um, Hassan al-Basri, Ikrama, and others. But we have a minority view from an earlier generation, mostly, that says that Surah Al-Insan was actually revealed in Mecca. And what is fascinating is that we have a number of reports that say that Surah Al-Insan was revealed directly after Surah Al-Rahman. But if you remember our discussion on Surah Al-Rahman, it is not clear whether Surah Al-Rahman was revealed in Mecca or Medina. Um, while there are many reports that Surah Al-Rahman was revealed in Medina, and not, uh, I mean, and most of these reports say that Ar-Rahman was revealed in Medina after the first year in Medina. So there were a number of other swore that was revealed before Ar-Rahman in Medina. Like Al-Baqarah, for instance, was revealed before Ar-Rahman. Or at least according to these reports. But at the same time, we get reports that say that when the in surah al-jinn when the jinn here uh, 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 when the jinn heard some of the quran that they reacted to very strongly that what they heard was surah al-rahman and if that report is correct then that would mean surah al-rahman has to be meccan and has to be before surah al-jinn um, and so you, you get this, this standoff between evidence that would indicate that Surah Al-Rahman is Meccan and evidence that would indicate that Surah Al-Rahman is Medinian. And then you have Surah Al-Insan, which is supposed to be revealed directly after Surah Al-Rahman. But then that means that if Surah Al-Rahman is Meccan, so, so must be Surah Al-Insan. But if it is Medinian, then so must be Surah Al-Insan. Now, Surah Al-Insan has two contextual hints to it. Is that Surah Al-Insan uses or refers to an asir. And we'll we'll talk about what 
this word means, but the most plain meaning of the word asir is a, a captive of war, a prisoner of war. And it would, it's not that it is impossible, but it is, would be unusual for the Quran to mention captives of war in the Mecca period, because Muslims didn't have captives of war. There, there were no captives. Uh, is it conclusive? No, it's not, because it is possible that the Quran would be referring to captives of war, whether these captives are captured by Muslims or non-Muslims. So when it says, be kind to captives of war, uh, it could be stating a general ethical principle that has nothing to do with whether Muslims themselves have prisoners of war or not, but just a broad principle. Nevertheless, many commentators thought that the reference in Surah Al-Insan to prisoners of war or captives of war is evidence that this is a Medinian Surah. There is, there, there are other reports that um, claim that Surah Al-Insan was revealed in response to an event that took place uh, with the family of the Prophet, um, especially uh, Ali radiallahu an, and uh, Hassan al-Hussein, the, the grandchildren of the Prophet. And some of these reports say that when this happened, Hassan al-Hussein were old enough to fast. Well, if that is so, then that would indicate, would again be further evidence that Surah Al-Insan is from the Medina period and not the Mecca period. Um, that, however, is not conclusive because of the debate around the very narrative that we will talk about involving in Hassan al-Hussein and Surat al-Insan. So we confront a real challenge in trying to figure out whether Surat al-Insan is in fact from the Mecca period or the Medina period. If we take the majority of early scholarly sources, then we would conclude it's a surah from the Medina period. Um, if we take the majority of authorities from the first generation of Quranic commentators instead of the second generation, then we would conclude it's a Mecca. It's a Meccan period uh, surah. If we accept that it was revealed right after Surah Al-Rahman, then, then we are bound 
to say if Surah Al-Rahman is Meccan, so so is Surah Al-Insan. But if Surah Al-Rahman is Medinian, so so is Surah Al-Insan. But the, is it possible that Surah Al-Insan was not revealed right after Surah Al-Rahman? And yes, it is possible. It is possible that it was not the Surah revealed after Surah Al-Rahman. which again complicates the, the, the picture even further. Uh, when I reviewed my notes last night and reviewed the, the research that I've done on this now a decade ago, um, it seemed from my notes that I was, and, and although my, my memory is foggy as to precisely the steps I took in researching this issue. But it seemed from my notes, at least, that I was strongly leaning towards accepting that Surat al-Insan is Meccan and not Medina. Um, and it's odd to say, but I sort of trust myself uh, a, a decade ago because more than I trust myself now, because back then I was in the thicket of all the books. I, everything was fresh. Uh, I was submerged in all the sources. I was keeping track of all the reports. Um, um, and so sometimes when you, you're reading your own notes, you find your own notes cryptic and you can't remember everything. But Allahu Alam. Now, does it make a difference um, for the message of the surah? Not really, um, except that considering the message of the surah, you would think that it is so critical that it would come earlier. But on the other hand, the reference to al-asir, to captives, uh, and we'll say more about this because as we'll see, al-asir doesn't necessarily mean captives of war. But we'll talk about this. It makes you, if it in fact means captives of war, then there's a historical context that sort of makes you uncomfortable conclusively saying that Surat al-Insan belongs to the Mecca period. So if I would reach a conclusion, I would say in all likelihood, in my opinion, and only Allah knows best, that Surat al-Insan is Meccan, like Surat al-Rahman, in, in, in my opinion. Uh, but I completely accept the possibility that I would be proven wrong uh, by a scholar who's doing extensive research at some later point and reaches an, a different conclusion. Um, uh, you know, it, it, that's the nature of scholarship, is that you always have to present your evidence and accept the possibility that um, there is something that you've missed or a lot of things that you've missed. That's just the nature of what research is and scholarship and delving into the past. Okay.
when you read a lot of the tafsir on Surah Al-Insan, you get the impression in many of the commentaries that Surah Al-Insan is primarily focused on spelling out what already Surah Al-Rahman has done quite a bit of, and that is spelling out the, the pleasures of the hereafter, especially heaven, and spelling out the rewards for the abrar. And we'll talk about the term abrar. But for now, as a placeholder, let's say the pious. And that, but in fact, Surat al-Insan um, in my view, that is not the main objective of Surat al-Insan. It is not a spelling out of the, you know, the, the, the range of rewards and um, prizes that are waiting the, the pious. But in, in fact, it is saying something that weighs very heavily upon the conscience. And it pivots around that key word, al-abrar. But in doing so, it puts you fully before the issue of what is the point, what is the meaning of a human being. And a, a, a rather sometimes uh, discomforting um, uh, reflection upon what it, uh, what would be necessary to attain our full humanity and full meaning within our existence. Okay. I'm mostly going to use uh, the tafsir, uh, Muhammad Asad's tafsir, because it's, again, with Surat al-Insan, it's just far closer to the nuances of the Arabic than any other tafsir I've uh, read. Okay. So let, let's just start. هل أتى على الإنسان حين من الظهر لم يكن شيئا مذكورا إن خلقنا الإنسان من نطفة أمشاج نبتليه, نبتليه فجعلناه سميعا بصيرا إن هديناه السبيل إما شاكرا وإما كفورا So it begins by posing a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question 
the answer to you, which is rather obvious, but at the same time requires a pause, a reflective pause. You could translate it as, isn't it the case, or has there been, either way would be accurate, but has there been in when human beings think of time and dahr is an unspecified period of time. The dahr is a time in a continuum. When we talk about dahr, we are talking about time without beginning and without end. So a, a, a time that is um, kept track of by a clock would not be called dahr. Dahr is sort of timeless time, if you will. So then you start out with this rhetorical question. Has there not been in your reflection upon Dahr, upon this timeless time, a time when human beings, and here the way it's phrased is, it's the, the more correct, in my view, translation or interpretation of it would be, uh, you as individuals, it's, some commentators said that it's saying don't human beings realize that before Adam was created, there were new human beings? But I don't think grammatically that it, that is the more likely in, uh, meaning. But rather the more likely meaning is that when you reflect upon time, don't you realize the full connotations, the full meaning of the fact that you were nothing? You were without consciousness. And Shay'an Mazkura, that it leaves open the possibility that Allah had foreknowledge of your eventual existence, but it doesn't resolve the issue of Allah's foreknowledge. The way it's phrased, لم يكن شيئاً مذكوراً simply says that it's as if saying reflect upon you the fact that the world existed and progressed and functioned without your beingness and that you come into consciousness to become a mazkur, to become something that is counted, something that is registered or observed or counted, but 
from nothingness to something. And the way that Lam Yakun Shay'an Mazkura immediately confronts you with, okay, so I have now come to be. Now I have a being, but this beingness, is it contingent on the fact that I matter to, if, if you will, to, an, uh, to observers or is it not contingent? So if I'm thinking of my beingness, is my beingness in some way either furthered or uh, attained value or worth or truth because I am imathkur. Imathkur is when you is when you notice something, you observe something, you remember something. And the way it is phrased, it confronts right away with the obvious question, is it because, in our modern language, is it because I have a birth certificate and I have an ID card and I have a name and I have school records, and I have official records that matters for my beingness, or is it because I am in the divine mind, in the mind of God, that makes me a madhkur? So, from nothingness to something, and inevitably, that being that you enjoy is recognized by your creator and it is recognized to one extent or another by the created. But it begs the question, where do you end up heading? Where is your landing place? As, especially in some in the Sufi writings, when they, they comment on Surah Ayat al-Dahr, as it's often known, the, the ayah, the verse, known as the verse of Dahr. That if you live your existence and you've worked very hard to be a maskur, to be remembered by all except God, then you've lost the challenge of Dahr, of timeless time. You've managed to be noticed and remembered by everything but what really matters 
when time is no longer subject to the confines of earthly life. When, when you confront timeless time. The, of course, the, on the other side is that if you are fully aware that your being, your consciousness, what matters is that you are fully in God's eye. Your fame, your worth is defined with your creator. And that's winning the challenge of timeless time, the challenge of God. Okay. So it starts out, as we said, with this existential rhetorical question. Have you reflected on the fact that you were absolutely nothing and you came into this conscious consciousness? And have you reflected on the fact that from the time that you come into being, you struggle to be a madhkur. All of us innately want to be recognized and remembered. But have you reflected on the fact, are you keen on being a madhkur, something noted and notable and remembered with the created or the creator? But upon consciousness, inna khalaqna al-insana min nutfatin amshajin nabtalihi faj'annahu sami'an basira. So we've created humans out of an intermingled sperm or drop of sperm. Nabtalihi. So that that human will be tested. Now, this ties into the critical theme of accountability. The word ibtila here is upon consciousness comes the responsibility of accountability. And since you are going to be held accountable, that's the reason for calling life an ibtila. So, There is a theological question where they say, is the reason for your Allah creating you, is it for Allah to test you? That would not be fully accurate. The test is a consequence of accountability. And that's why many theologians say, that it is far more accurate to say that the reason for creation is for you to know your creator. So 
that Allah created because the Creator wanted to be recognized and known by what the Creator created. The purpose of your existence is that so you will come to know your Creator. But the possibility of knowing your Creator in so that, how do I put this? If, the, if Allah created you and defined your will, if Allah created you and said, you have the will that I give you, and pair your will, you will come to know me, then this poses a philosophical question. The angels know God, but they know God according to what God pre-decreed about their knowledge of God. So let's say God creates an angel and says, you angel, you will get to know me 70%. The philosophical question is, is God being known? Because God gave the angel the will through which the angel gets to know God. So effectively, that will can't be attributed to the angel. It must be attributed to God. So it is as if God is knowing God's self. Only with free will is knowledge of God possible. Because God creates you and doesn't define, you will come to know me 70%. God says, I've created you, and the range of possibilities are enormous. You will come to know me 10%, you will come to know me 0%, you will come to know me 100%. It is because of your effort that you come to know God. So then God is coming to be known through the exercise of the autonomous will of a human being. Put it differently, if you create a robot, and let's say that robot is as intelligent as you make it. So the robot only knows as knows about any particular subject, let's say mathematics, what you've programmed into the robot. Is the robot's knowledge attributable to the robot or to you? If the robot has no will of their own, then 
everything the robot knows is attributable to you. There's no knowledge. It is only if you give the robot the ability to exercise free will in exercise in 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 knowing where you can meaningfully say there is learning and there is knowledge. So this is a a a a more subtle point because why free will? Well, because without free will there would be no real knowledge of the divine. Then it would just be the divine knowing the self, knowing the divine self, which is entirely circular. But with free will comes the necessity of accountability. And accountability comes the essence of being tested. If I put you in a classroom and I say at the beginning of the classroom, all of you at the end are going to get A's. I might have given you free will, but I've made your presence in the classroom entirely meaningless. If I put you in the classroom and I say, by the end, all of you will flunk, again, I might have given you free will, but I made your existence of the classroom entirely meaningless because your learning has nothing to do with the consequences. The only way that you're learning, the only way that we can have your learning be commiserate with the consequences of learning is to have justice. To say, well, if you learn XYZ, you pass. If you don't learn, you fail. Whether I treat you justly or not, you have free will. But it is the fact that I make your learning meaningful is what brings in, brings in the element, the value of justice. Is this too abstract for people? Okay. So, You often hear carelessly Muslims say, well, the reason for our existence is to be tested. No, the reason for our existence is to know our Creator. But in order for Ma'rifah to have meaning, there must be choice. Otherwise, then God is just knowing God's self. But in order for choice to be meaningful, there has to be 
a relationship between choice and consequences. That's when accountability comes in. And accountability is what creates the element of ibtila. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, then the ibtila is, as I explained, is a consequence of this dynamic that comes along with consciousness. And the samia, the with the power of perception and the power of hearing, some commentators, which I agree with, said that Samia is symbolically stands for revelatory evidence, and Basir stands for Akli evidence for rational evidence. Basir is insight. And notice it's not it's not that we made them seeing, but we made them have insight. And in it was a a, a common in um a, a common symbolism in Arabic language that when you are referring to Dalil al-Sam'i, i.e. revelatory evidence, evidence that is simply trans attained through transmission, through memory and transmission. But when you talk about Dalil al-Aqli, rational evidence, you, say, you use the expression Basir. And so we've given human beings the ability to consider both types of evidence. Transmitted evidence, i.e. revelation, and rational evidence, i.e. reason. إِنَّا هَدَيْنَاهُ السَّبِيلَ إِمَّا شَاكِرًا وَإِمَّا كَفُورًا So, we've put, and this is, a, a, you'll find a lot of, uh, some some tafsirs are closer than others in, in it, but when um, the uh, Muhammad Azad said, we have shown him the way, and it rest, rests with him to prove himself either grateful or ungrateful. Now you have revelatory evidence and rational evidence. Some Quran translate this, and we've guided we guided human beings to either being grateful or ungrateful. And that translation is clearly incorrect. Because the, trend, the, the, the clear meaning of it, in Sabir, is that we place them on the path of guidance. It's like taking someone and say, okay, this is the path. Now, you can choose 
to walk this path and ultimately be unrighteous or to be unrighteous. And note that righteousness, because here, as the, 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 what this alludes to, is the ability to discern right from wrong. But in the Quranic outlook, all rights, all morality begins with the basic moral value of gratitude. And if you go back to the Halakha on Al-Fatiha, the essence of Surah Al-Fatiha is to tell you gratitude. Human beings are notoriously um, capable of ignoring what they owe because the idea of gratitude is founded on the philosophy of rights. When I recognize your right, I am being a Shakur. When I deny your right, I am being a Kafur. Why is that? Because if you are aware of the rights of others, and you are aware that you do not have the right to pounce on the rights of others, that is the heart of the moral value of gratitude. Most of our immorality is because we are confused about what rights we owe others and what rights we feel entitled to unfairly or unjustly so when I hurt someone and I hurt someone and I had no right to hurt that person that dynamic is a dynamic in which rights have stepped over each other so a right transgressed upon the rights of others. That is the essence of what become, what eats away at a human being, the, the ingratitude. We don't normally think of, right, think of rights that way, but that's the essence of rights, is that when you recognize the right of another, 
you exist in a relationship of, we say gratitude for to, to, as a translation for the word shakur, but shakur is not just gratitude, but it is literally the acknowledgement, acknowledging the other. Acknowledging what the other is due. So, of course, the fundamental issue is to acknowledge what is due to your God. Now, we know in Islamic jurisprudence that the presumption is that rights of human beings come before the rights of God in life on earth. So, when it comes to figuring out what you should do on earth, you must concern yourself with giving human beings the rights. But in the hereafter, God will vindicate God's rights. And so the, the challenge is that if you ignore God's rights, there will be a bill to pay. But it's a delayed bill. It's sort of a, and it's, this is part of the magnanimity of God is that God allows you to get so much credit and doesn't um, of course and of course the, the, that is also the reason why so many people go astray it's because of that kindness so let's now go to four إن عتدنا للكافرين سلاسل وأغلال وسعيرة. For those who are kafirin, and a kafir is in essence someone who systematically ignores what others are due. So the the, the heart of kufr is ingratitude and so for those who so first let's take the translation uh, the, the, the Muhammad Asad it's uh, translated as we, we for those who deny the truth but uh, uh, just put in what we said about Kafirin We've ready chains and shackles and a blazing flame. Now, the aghlal, the, the salasil and the aghlal and the sa'ir, these three elements, Aghlal, salasil are chains. Aghlal are shackles, literal meaning. And sa'ir is a hellfire or blazing fire, what? Either. In traditional Tafsir, they're given the, the traditional meaning. 
but in tafsir like like Zamakhshari or Razi or even the Su or the Sufi esque tafsir, the salasal and the aglal, both the chains and the shackles, are metaphors for the state of human beings who surrendered in their life those who surrender to their own uh, passions, their own um, whims, their own false values. And as a result, as you often point, pointed out in the Sufi Astafasir, is that their state in life was a state of enslavement. They lived their lives having been enslaved, having surrendered to what stimulates them, that they've become enslaved to their whims and their passions, and I would simply add to their materialism, to their consuming self. They became enslaved to the zukhruf of the dunya, that they became slaves to everything that the world offers consumptively. So their state in the hereafter is but a manifestation of what their hands sowed in the here now. The sa'ir, which in the Sufi tradition, the worst sa'ir, the worst blaze, if you will, is the separation and distance from your maker and your God. The absolute um, isolation and abandonment and hopelessness and despair when the only thing that in fact gives you a sense of meaning and purpose in existence because the only source of meaning in this universe is the is the divine everything else is just a puzzle you know, vast darkness, vast spaces, means nothing beyond their chemical composition, which is... Uh, but the aglal and the salasal, it's, it's an important concept that these are already shackles that what one sees in the hereafter is the truth of what they sowed in their earthly life. 
what they've actually created for themselves. And they've made themselves, or they enslaved themselves in earthly life, and in the hereafter, when the veils are lifted, you see the truth of your being. Okay. إن الأبرار يشربون من كأس كان مزاجها كافورة عينا يشرب بها عباد الله يفجرونها تفجيرا. Okay, so this is now five and six. Whereas the truly virtuous shall drink from a cup flavored. Muhammad Asad says Kylex. Of sweet smelling flowers. Um, this is normally translated, and I'm not gonna, you know, um, the study Quran says, truly the pious drink of a cup mixed with camphor. Muhammad Asad says that it's not camphor. He, if I remember correctly, he argues that no, kafur is. Is not comfortable, but anyway, we'll, we'll, uh, a source of bliss whereof God's servant shall drink, see it, seeing it flow in a flow abundant. Okay. Okay. So now you note here that in verse number. Five, Allah right after po so first posed the existential question of saying where have you been before consciousness and your consciousness has a purpose your existence have a, has a purpose and with that purpose comes the ibtila the challenge and the challenge of accountability and that the choice in this path is yours while those who fail to realize the truth of their existence, that they are limited by the pre-existing rights of their maker and the, the co-existing rights of the created, the, 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 kafir, the uh, kafirin, who lived enslaved to their passions and their desires and their whims and their, so they, it, lived an enslavement, a concealed enslavement on earthly life would become an express enslavement in the hereafter. Then that's juxtaposed to Abrar. And that's why I said Surat al-Insan is a little bit of a challenge. Because it tells you that Al-Abrar, as to the Abrar, They will be drinking a drink 
that the Quran describes as Mizajuha Kafur. Now, whether the study Quran is correct in saying it's Kanfur or whether Muhammad Asad is correct in saying that it's Calix um, sweetened with, um, what is it, sweetened with, um, or uh, of sweet smelling flowers. It's really beside the point because Mizaj Kafur is at that expression you can take it literally that you're going to be drink a mixed drink and normally in the traditional tafsir they tell you it's wine fra uh, 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 fragrant wine but there is a, a little um, twist to this is that Arabs didn't use camphor as a fragrant to wine and it actually wouldn't work and that's why Muhammad Asad says calyx not camphor but in either case it's really beside the point because Mizajwa Kafur is an expression that has great symbolic significance. When you talked about a, a drink that was mixed with Kafur, it symbolically meant the drink of divine knowledge the drink of the Godhead where you attain illumination it is not an intoxicant it is not just a, a thrill drink but it is the drink of illumination where the eyes and mind open without barriers. Now, and this is again, I mean, I, when, I, when I realize I'm doing Surat al-Insan, I... You always take a deep breath in because you, you just pray to Allah, help me communicate everything the way I should communicate it. Those who drink the divine elixir, the elixir of divine knowledge, are lovers of the divine. And lovers of the divine can be of two types. Those who love the divine 
sorry, sorry. Lovers of the divine can be of two types. Those who came to know the divine through the attributes of the divine. So those who reflect upon existence and they know the divine through the manifestations of the attributes of divinity in existence. So they see the attributes of a Rahman, the attributes of a Rahim, the attributes of a Latif, the attributes of a Wadud, all these attributes of divinity. And they come close to Allah through the attributes of divinity. For these people, among the attributes of God is that God is, the attributes of God are complete, a totality that is holistic and balanced. So God is the God of vengeance, but also the God of justice and the God of mercy. And they know God through the attributes of God. Beyond that is where you know God, not through the attributes of God, but through the essence of God. So you got beyond loving God for the attributes of God, but you love God for the essence of God. Bring it closer to you. Do you know when you're, you're in love with someone and they say, why do you love me? Well, I love you because you're kind, you're generous, you're funny, you're... Okay, that's loving someone because of their attributes. They say, why do you love me? I love you because of you. Okay, what if I hit my head and my personality completely changes. I love you so much that it doesn't matter if you become a completely different human being, I still love you. That's loving someone because of their that, of their self. In, if you, in the discourse about or in the experience of your relationship with Allah, Those who walk the path of love always start with knowing God and experiencing God through the attributes of God. But once you elevate beyond, you don't need to be in good health, for instance, to love God. You love God whether you are in pain or in good health whether you're poor or whether you're rich, whether you're experiencing God's mercy or you're not experiencing God's mercy. It is all the same to you. Your relationship with Allah has become personal and not contingent on the attributes. So, when Allah subhanahu ta'ala says, those who drink the elixir of divine knowledge.
in in the the especially in the um, more spiritual writings. That elixir, the way you experience the elixir, depends on what your relationship to Allah is and whether you know Allah through Allah's attributes or Allah's debt. And that is all encapsulated in that short expression, Mizajul Kafura. Okay, now notice that this is what so who is going to be drinking that elixir? It's the abrar. And who are the abrar? And that's the question. And normally, we translate the word abrar as the pious. But abrar, as, as uh, it, um, linguistically, means... Something that is wide or expansive or big, spacious. So, an abrar is not just those who are pious, but our abrar are those who have achieved a level of magnanimity. So, it is not just the observing Muslim, but it is the Muslim who have gone beyond observance to internalizing either a relationship with the divine attributes the Sifat al-Ilahiyya, or even more, al-Zat al-Ilahiyya, the Divine Self. So, one of the most interesting things that I just remember from the tradition, when a student once asked a Maliki scholar, I don't remember what the Maliki scholar's name was, student asked the, the American scholar, what does al-abrar mean? And he said, la yu'zun al-dhar. They don't harm, al-dhar are, are, are small insects. He said, they don't harm small insects. It's a remarkable just summation of things. It's like the abrar are those who've attained a level of awareness of their existence that their existence, their consciousness, they come from nothingness to something in the dahr. And so does an insect. So does an animal. So does a plant. And so the abrar are fully aware of their consciousness and they are not, they don't act, commit acts of kufr. Here, kufr doesn't mean being infidels. Kufr means 
that they don't transgress upon the rights of those who exist within the Dah. Does everyone follow? So, when they think of themselves and they think of an insect, they don't see themselves as more entitled to be than the insect. We are on equal footing. And the issue is, what rights do I have as a human being and what rights do you have as an insect? And they meticulously maintain the equilibrium of rights. Those are the people that are on the path to understanding the sifat, the attributes, or understanding the that, the self, the divine self, and that become in a position to drink the elixir of divine knowledge. So, Allah then tells us something more about the abrar. And it is noteworthy what precisely Allah says about the abrar. So, first, those abrar, what Muhammad Asad translated, puts as the truly virtuous. So, First, yufuna bin nudur. They fulfilled their vows. وَيَخَافُونَ يَوْمًا كَانَ شَرُّهُ And they are in awe of a day, the woe of which is bound to spread far and wide. يَوْمًا كَانَ شَرُّهُ There will be a day which is terrifying, and the Abrar are ever mindful of that day. But note that first, what Allah says about them is they observe the nudur. Now, nudur is anything that is promised to another. It could be your word when you say, I will marry you, that's another. I will take care of you, that's another. I will deliver this on time, that's another. I will do this job, that's another. But the another are also what is binding upon you by the natural order of things. So when you take care of your child, you are fulfilling a nudur. Although you might say, I never vowed to take care of my child, and Allah would say, well, when you had the child, that was your vow. Similarly, by the way, which would shock a lot of people in modern, among modern Muslims. If you have sexual relations with someone, 
if Allah allows you to avoid, and let's say you don't live in a state where you can be criminally prosecuted for that, but there's a nudr in that. You've shared an intimacy, you've shared a privacy, and there are vows, not vows by you, but vows by your maker, that become involved in doing so. Among them, at a minimum, for instance, that if a pregnancy results that you can't abort it. And you could say, well, I never vowed not to abort. Well, no, you did. When it is God that defines the vows, not you. This is critical because the way modern Muslims are educated is completely all this part of our tradition. You, you, you know, you, you might have heard that in the old country where your parents came from, that, oh, if someone, uh, you know, sleeps with someone and then if they're discovered, the parents want them to get married. The origin of this, that's a cultural practice, but the theological origin of this is the idea of the implied vows. That's where it came from, is that, well, now you've done the deed, now you've got to take responsibility for it. Of course, you know, culturally we've emptied it from a lot of its meaning and so on, but it, it, when you, you have to teach our children responsibility of the implied vows of their existence. You, when you have children, there are implied vows. When you take a job, there are implied, implied vows. When you become a student, there are implied vows. When you, we live, remember, the kafir is someone who ignores the rights, either the rights of God or the rights of others, both. Yufuna bin their vows. And that's why the vows, as you notice, come before the fear or they are in awe of a day that is going to be truly tried. Because the evidence of your fear is your observance of the vows. You the evidence that you really do not have fear, that you just tell yourself, I am fearful of the final day, but you lack a man, you don't really believe, is that you don't observe your vows. You think that, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. And then, and this is not, Remember, this is not, we're not talking about just believers. We're talking about the abrar, the abrar, because this is really important for the point of the surah. And then beyond that, what does Allah tell us about the abrar? So we know now the vows, we know now that they are in awe or in fear of the, the, the most trying day, but no. This is verse 8 now. 
إنا نطعمكم لوجه الله لا نريد منكم جزاء ولا شكورا إنا نخاف من ربنا يوما عبوسا قمطريرا فوقاهم الله شر ذلك اليوم ولقاهم مدرة وسرورا So, so those who give food على حبه regardless Muhammad Asad says however great their want, their own want of it and I'll comment on this على حبه they give food unto the needy the orphan and the captive the asir Remember, we were talking at the beginning of the, about the Asir. Their attitude, what their hearts tell themselves, is we feed you for the sake of God alone. We desire no recompense, no reward from you. Nor do we expect gratitude or thanks. Behold, we stand in awe of our sustainer's judgment on a stressful, fateful day. So, we pause here. Those who are abroad observe their vows, but يطعمون الطعام على حبه Several possible permutations to the meaning of that ayah. They give food although they love, meaning they give the, of the best of what they owe. Ala hubbi, although they, they love what they have. So in other words, although they want to hold on to what they have, but they give it. And they give it to the needy, they give it to the orphan, and they give it to the captive. Okay. Another permutation. Ala hubbihi doesn't really mean that it's just dear to them or what they really value. So they give what they, they value the most. But even if they have a great need for it, they still share it. Many Sufi tafsir said, ala hubbihi doesn't refer to the food, it refers to we give food ala hubbihi, mean out of our love for God. I think that Tafsir is incorrect. I don't think ala hubbi is means out of our love for God, because it says that in the, in the next ayah. But I think ala hubbi actually means it's not talking about just food. It's talking that about your attitude towards material things that you value. We share what we have, although. We care, I, I don't give you what I don't use. I don't give you what is extra. I don't give you what is, I'm done with. I give you from the heart of what I desire and want. And I'm actually attached to. 
Now, so when you when you translate this, what is it? It's your attitude towards material things. It's exactly what we were saying at the beginning. If you are a materialistic human being, and you say, my car, my clothes, my money, my house, you're not among the abrar. The abrar are these class of people who understood the, the, the balance between rights after coming to consciousness and understand that the heart of morality is a gratitude among the complex matrix of rights and that if you understand the complex matrix of rights then you're hard pressed to answer the following question as the Qadi Abdul-Jabbar says why am I entitled to eat and survive, but you are not entitled to eat to survive? You don't know between me and you which of us is a better human being. You don't know between me and you which of us is closer to Allah. You don't know which of us has a pure, pure heart. We don't know and there's no and we shouldn't know. That's not the issue. The issue is that we instinctively think that I have a right to preserve myself and if I have extra I'll preserve you. But that's not the moral question. The moral question is why do I have a right? to preserve yourself and you don't and what makes my life more valuable than yours and if said, if you pose that question as a moral compass and you ask what gives me the right to be wearing these fine threads while you go around and torn in, in rags what gives me the right to sleep comfortably while you in a bed, while you sleep in the street? The way you conceive of the complex relationship between rights will be altered completely. Because we have no philosophical way other than pure instinctive selfishness to say, well, I have value or I have a greater right because if you say, well, it's my labor, but then you confront the issue of, well, is it really your labor or is it the labor that Allah gave to you? Now, of course, here again, we go back to the abrar, to the abrar. There is a couple of other things about this. There is a narrative widely reported that is often said to be the reason that these ayat were revealed. And the narrative is the following. Is that 
الإمام علي الفاطمة had their children الحسن والحسين and الحسن والحسين became ill during a plague and that they were very sick and that Imam Ali and Fatima prayed to Allah to cure them and they vowed that if they are cured their fast three days but and so Allah cured Al-Hasan Al-Hussein and then Imam Ali and Fatima didn't have food at home so they went and they borrowed some wheat from a neighbor in some reports it says a Jewish neighbor and they and Fatima radiallahu anha baked pieces of bread a piece of bread for each member of the family so the first day as they were getting ready to eat a man came and said I am very poor do you have anything that you can give me so they gave him the food that they had prepared and on the second day another person came and this person was an orphan and so they gave him the second day also gave him whatever food they had and they went hungry and on the third day they gave the food to someone who was a captive of war hence when I say that if this is an occasion for revelation then this has to be a Medinan surah not a Meccan surah because it was supposed to be a captive of war who is not a believer who is an infidel who is a kafir but who was captured in the water a battle of Badr and and the way prisoners of war was treated at the time of the Prophet was that prisoners of war would be distributed among the different houses in Medina so the the Prophet would say you know okay you go to this house you go to this house you go to that house and it was then up to the house that is um, sheltering the prisoner of war to feed that prisoner of war but the the Prophet said that you must feed them like you feed yourselves okay so according to the narrative is that then the, the third day is uh, the prisoners of war then after three days of not eating because every day they've given their food away the Prophet saw Imam Ali and Fatima and they and Hassan and Hussein and they were uh, they looked weak and pale because um, from malnutrition because they hadn't eaten for three days and Surat al-Insan then was revealed at that point now there is a big debate about the authenticity of this tradition in terms of chains of transmission it it enjoys solid chains of transmission 
the skepticism about this tradition, if we, some, some of the skepticism is because of certain involvement of certain people in the chain of transmission, but if we overlook that because if, if you believe that these people are okay, which I believe they're okay, then, it's a, then the chain of transmission is solid. But the issue is that it was not in keeping with the character of Imam Ali radiallahu an on Fatima al-Zahra to say that Allah, if you cure our children, will fast three days. That that type of vow is not, it's very inconsistent with their personality. So that's one. Two, it has the earmark of medieval narratives that are very structured and layered. On the first day, there's a needy person. On the second day, there's an orphan. On the third day, there's a captive of war. Very sifted and organized, and that's very typical of medieval narratives. It is very likely, and I think we have ample evidence of that, is that simply what happened is that probably they did go and borrow wheat. Fatima Zahra probably baked bread, a piece of bread, a, 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 a loaf of bread for each, you know, which is like a circle, it was a bun. A bread for Imam Ali, one for Hassan, one for Hussein. And probably a poor person did come by and they gave them the food. And I think that probably is a historical event. But I think the historical event was then remembered and exaggerated into three days with a needy person and an orphan and a captive. And then it was grafted as an occasion for revelation for this, for Surah Al-Insan. But there are many reports about the practice of al-bayt of people knowing that if there's any food to give they will give it even if they go hungry and that's too cumulative and even to the point of tawatur there's so many reports of such events and it was and there were so many people around medina who were needy because a lot of people who were converting to Islam were very poor. And people who were runaway slaves, people who were runaway farmers, people who were runaway laborers, running away from persecution who were absolutely destitute, and they knew that going to Adil Bayt is the best bet they have. And it became very well known that Ali Bayt would give whatever clothes they have, whatever food they have, whatever anything they have. So that that's is that is beyond doubt. But what I'm talking about is that highly structured narrative and grafting it upon Surah Al Insan. Okay. Now the other thing okay, last point for prayers. The other thing is about the word Asir. Asir could mean, and in most situations, it means a war captive, a prisoner of war. 
However, the Prophet The Prophet said, Gharimuka asiruk, fahsin ila asirik. Your, anyone who owes you money is your asir, is your captive. So the Prophet said, so be kind and generous to your captive. We have from the Sunnah of the Prophet that the Prophet ﷺ not just referred to someone that owes you money as your captive, but anything or anyone who needs you as your asir. So we have in the tradition that a cat that depends on you to eat is your asir. So in the, a dog who relies on you for their survival is your asir. Which means that you are obligated to preserve its life and to take care of it. And Abrar do not put their life ahead of the life of their Asir, including whatever relies on them for its its sustenance. They do not believe themselves entitled over others but they see everything from the perspective of a matrix and balance of rights. And they're ever so careful not trans to transgress upon the rights of others. Okay, let's stop here and pray Asr. We'll be back, inshallah. You know, I have to say this, Surat al-Insan, no Muslim who is worth being called a Muslim can afford not to learn what Surat al-Insan is saying. Surat al-Insan, I mean, I've heard many Muslims give tafsir of Surat al-Insan and they were all, they all made me want to cry. Just completely superficial, completely ignorant completely unlearned, without learning, without, you know. But it's, it, it, I can't help but feel sad that, you know, we're such a small group, such a small group for such a monumental message. Lillahi al-amr As we were saying, so the the vows, the relationship to material things, and the special status of the needy, orphans, and the asir, and as we said, the, the asirs,
is could be a war captive, but also could be a person in debt, or any person that, or anything that relies on you for its sustenance. Um, an asir also could be people in prison, uh, generally. Um, in Surah Al-Umran, Allah says, that you will not attain bir, abrar, the same word, that status, um, unless you spend of what, what you are attached to, what you care about. So again, that same idea that um, it is not simply a matter of um, spending that not a matter of just spending of what is excess or what giving what is extra or what is beyond uh, what you need and that Verse 9, that we give you, we feed you, not expecting anything in return, not even gratitude. Now, if you notice that um, one of the biggest problems with the ethic of giving is that wealthy people will often give but want a differential attitude. They want to be, the, the, the fact that they give affects the relationship of power vis-a-vis -vis others. So the fact that they give makes them feel that you, could, you should speak to them with a certain amount of deference, that you should acknowledge their authority, acknowledge their position. Um, which is, it's good for whatever it's worth, but it is not the status of the abrar. It is the abrar, they're, they're giving, they do it out of a sense of what they owe people, meaning the, the rights of others, and they do not, in fact, even expect gratitude or any type of return for it. And when you say that we give you that expression for literally for God's face, but which is an idiomatic expression, means for God's sake. But it is because of our relationship to God, means because of our relationship to God, because of what we believe, we, we are uh, bound to do, because of what, how we understand our relationship with God, 
we are giving you. There is um, one final thing about this. Uh, there is a, a report about Aisha, the prophet's wife, that when she would um, uh, send people um, things, she would give people things, she would ask what did they say when they received whatever she was sending them. And they would say, well, they did, they, they, when they received it, you know, they said, may, may Allah reward you, may Allah bless you, you know, all the dua. And then she would repeat the precise dua that they said on her behalf back at them. So she would say, may Allah bless them, may Allah reward them. And that she would do so precisely to fight the temptation that she would be among those who expect to be thanked or expect anything in return for giving. Okay. فَوَقَاهُمُ اللَّهُ شَرَّ ذَلِكَ الْيَوْمُ وَلَقَاهُمْ نَضْرَةً وَسُرُورًا So Allah then protects the abroad of the woes of that day and bestows upon them the abrar nadratan nadra is an illuminosity a a brightness a a glow wasurura and happiness now note that this day which is, which is described as a, a day of kamtarir, abus, a, a very difficult day, a trying day. The attitude of the abrar is not just that they are rewarded, but they are, the blessing that they are given is that they know that they are secure. So in that day, when everyone else is sweating buckets in intense anxiety in worry the attitude of the abrar is that they will have nadra a, a a level of tranquility and comfort and peace wasurura and even happiness wajazahum bima sabaru jannata wa harira and allah gives them Bima sabaru, and notice as this is again something that many theologians have, have noted that Allah immediately goes to the issue of perseverance and patience because you cannot be among the abrar, those who are mindful, ever mindful of gratitude, i.e. You, the rights of others, including the rights of God, of course. And you cannot be among those who fight off attachment to material things and not find that trying and difficult in your life on earth. And so the, Allah goes directly to the heart of the matter and says, for their patience, 
they are then rewarded with Jannah. Harira, Harir literally is silk, but and normally in most traditional tafsir they're translated as garments of silk. But Harir doesn't need to be translated as silk. Harir is any state. The reason we call silk silk is because it induces harir, i.e. it induces or it's supposed to induce or was thought to induce a state of intense repose and comfort. So when you say that their reward is jannah and harir means their reward is jannah and peace and comfort, not their reward is Jannah and silk garments. Okay. Muttakeena ala al-araika ala al-araiki la yaruna fiha shamsa wala zamharira wa daniyatan alayhim zilaluha wa zullilat kutufuha tazlila wa yutafu alayhim bi-aniyatin min fiddati wa akwabin kanat qawarira قوارير من فضة قدروها تقديرا ويسقون فيها كأسا كان مزاجها زنجبيلا عينا فيها تسمى سلسبيلا Okay, so this now takes us to verse 18. So Muhammad Asad's translation which I'm um, rely on for um, that they in that garden they will will that they will be crouching or they will be reclining on crouches and will know therein neither burning sun nor cold severe since it is its blissful shades will come down low over them and will hang down its clusters of fruit most easy to reach and they will be waited upon with vessels of silver and goblets that will seem to be crystal. Crystal-like and of silver, the measure thereof they alone will determine. And in that paradise they will be given to, the, to drink of a cup flavored with ginger, derived from a, sur, from a source to be found therein whose name is Seek Thy Way. Now, the first thing you notice about this description in Surah Al-Insan is that it makes reference to things that seem familiar and common, but if you reflect and you pay attention to what it's saying, It also, at the same time, is nothing like what we know on earth. So, first, muttakiina fihal al-araik. Okay, so they're reclining. And we know that reclining was as an image intimately connected with the issue of class in this time. Rich people ate while reclining. 
people who were not rich did not eat while reclining. It was part of the mannerisms of the rich is that they eat reclining. So they do not experience in it shams is sun, the mahir is cold. At the same time that there is no sun and there is no cold, but there are shades that they are in shades. Muhammad Asad puts in, in brackets blissful shades. And I suspect that he, the reason he put blissful shades is because of the same issue that I will talk about. Is that um, that shade is normally because of the interaction between sunlight and what blocks sunlight. And the reason we care about shade is because of, of the properties of the sun and the heat that comes from the sun. But here, the Quran first tells you that there is no sun and there is no cold. But then it comes and tells you that they are in shades. And it tells you that something is hanging in low clusters that is easy to access, but it doesn't say what is hanging in low clusters. And when you say that akwab kanat qawarir, meaning these are cups that are transparent because they're made of very fine glass. But here, the Quran gives you a twist and it tells you that these very fine cups are not made of glass, they're made of fudda, made of silver. We don't know how to make out of silver something that looks like fine transparent glass. And it emphasizes this. So these cups of translucent silver, they, they are measured proportionately to each person according to something that this person exercises, but we don't know what is it that the person exercises. So the way this is resolved in traditional tafsir is to say that, well, you will drink as much as you want to drink at will. So 
you have the cups, your cups will be full of wine, and they will be as full as you want them to be full. And what you drink is flavored with ginger, which ginger and wine were not things flavored together among Arabs at that time. I don't know if ginger and wine are flavored together now, but... And this, this spring, there is a spring that is known as Salsabil, but the word Salsabil itself gives pause because the word Salsabil is a composite word which means Sal Aina Sabil. Ask what is the path in response to earlier generations reflecting upon these verses. Ibn Abbas says, وَكُلُّ مَا ذَكْرَهُ اللَّهُ فِي الْقُرْآنِ مِمَّا فِي الْجَنَّةِ فَلَيْسَ مِنْهُ فِي الدُّنْيَا إِلَّا الْإِسْمِ That everything that Allah mentions in Jannah, the only commonality between it and what we know on earth is the name. So what Ibn Abbas is saying is that a cat in earthly life means a cup. But what is a cup in the hereafter? We have no clue. Or when Allah says Ara'ik, couches. On earth, we know what couches are, but what are couches in the hereafter? We have no clue. Now, beyond that, some of the and I'm taking you just step by step, so just bear with me. Other theologians then commented that you note that in earthly life, joys, earthly pleasures, tend to pivot around three things. Qada'i shahwa The pleasure of shahwa like shahwa is like food or sex is something that you do physically and it brings you pleasure wa imda'il al-ghadab and the discharge of accumulated energy or angst. And a love of an aspirational pleasure like power, 
prestige money. So it is you are discharging a material pleasure like eating, sex, discharging energy like anger or angst or whatever bubbles within the self. And third is an aspirational, relational pleasure like money, power, prestige. And I believe, I believe this is from a Razi, but I might be wrong. And then, typically, the comment on this is, وَمَا ذَكَرَهُ اللَّهُ فِي الْجَنَّةِ يَجِبْ أَنْ يَكُونَ مُغَايِرًا لِتِلْكَ الْلَذَّاتِ الْحَقِيرَةِ But what, what Allah mentions in the context of heaven, is not consistent with any of these pleasures. This is a coup because if you are not relying on shahwa and you're not relying on bent-up energy like anger or ambition or and you're not relying on a conceived relational pleasure like power or money, then the very nature of the things that you enjoy in heaven are very different than what we commonly understand by pleasures. So, this is precisely then the, the people, then you come and say, well, what are the pleasures? The rationalists and the Sufis are surprisingly very close in the way that they understand the ayat of Surah Al-Insan. And that what these descriptions are not of any pleasures that we have a frame of reference to but both the rationalists and the Sufis see all these pleasures as a stages of illumination and knowledge and enlightenment. So, muttaki'ina ala al-ara'ik, reclining on crouches, they read that as you recline on the foundation of knowledge that you had attained in your earthly life. La shamsan wa la zamharira, that there is no shame. It's not you're tor not you're not tormented. There's there's no any of the lowly 
inclinations or lowly feelings. But you are in zilal, meaning you are in safety and security. But what is available to you are the perils of illumination and knowledge and closeness to the divine that as if hanging fruit that all depend on your will to walk the path. And they have a very similar interpretation about the Qawarir, Manfudda, and so on. All of the words stand symbolically for attainments of illumination and self-realization. And here, so they, they make a, a considerable deal out of why Allah said that the qawarir are from fiddah and not from gold. Because fiddah had in the idiomatically a significant symbolic meaning, silver in particular, as to this, uh, uh, while gold connoted vanity and flashiness, silver connoted um, the opposite of vanity, but rather meaning and substance. So you are, what you're imbuing, what you're taking in, are state or are points of illumination and knowledge that are, represent stages or points of proximity to the divine. So notice then in 20, we come to what we've encountered before. وَيَطُوفُ عَلَيْهِمْ وُلْدَانٌ مُخَلَّدُونَ إِذَا رَأَيْتَهُمْ حَسِبْتَهُمْ لُؤْلُؤًا مَنْثُورًا وَإِذَا رَأَيْتَ ثُمَّ رَأَيْتَ نَعِيمًا وَمُلْكًا كَبِيرًا So, an immortal youth will wait upon them. When thou seest them, thou wouldst deem them to be scattered, scattered perils. And when thou seest anything that is there, thou wilt see only bliss and a realm transcendent. Before actually doing this, I wanted to, uh, on on the the ayat that um, um, so he, in the ayat that where Allah is talking about the crouches and the goblets and so on. So this is from Ibn Ajiba. He says. Um, so he says, and uh, then I'll prefer it. ويطعمون طعام الأرواح والأسرار من العلوم والمعارف على حبه إذ لا شيء عز منه من عندهم إذ هو الإكسير الأكبر والغنى الأوفر مسكينا أي ضعيفا من اليقين ويتيما لا شيء صار. Then he also says يطهرهم من محبة الأغيار ويقول من الغل والغش. والدعوة. Uh, 
من سقاه اليوم شراب محبته لا يستوحش في وقته من شيء ومن مقتدى شربه بكأس محبته أن يجود على كل أحد بكونين من غير تمييز لا يبقى على قلبه أثر للأخطار وما آثر شربه بذل كله لكل أحد لأجل محبوبه and so on. So in the Sufi's tradition, what, what he's saying is, is pretty much what I introduced, that what they're, what they're consuming and what they're drinking, what they're taking in, is asrar min al-uloom wal-ma'arif ala are the, the knowledge of of the knowledge of the past of of loving Allah and being in a loving relationship with Allah. Um, where you say that they are cleansed of in that state they are cleansed of all desires but their single genuine desire to know their divine maker and the truth of the divine maker. So this we've encountered of course before but it, it's important to keep rem remembering that the traditional stance which sees the pleasures of heaven in very material terms is not the only stance. Okay, we'll go back to uh, verse 20 about the immortal youth. Okay. This in traditional tafsir is described as immortal youth meaning beautiful young souls that serve people in Jannah. Who are these youth? In traditional tafsir, you get the rather ridiculous opinion that these are the children of kuffar. Um, second school says that these are the children of believers who died at a very young age and they died before the age of accountability so they all automatically went to Jannah. The third view that says, no, these are not children of kuffar or children of believers. These are beings uh, who are created by God in the hereafter in Jannah to serve those in Jannah. That's, these are the traditional positions. What represents, and again, we've encountered this before, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but um, is the Sufi-esque tradition, which all goes back to these youths that appear as immortal youth, or tajalliyat zatiyya. مقرطون بقرطة الأسماء والصفات إذا رأيتهم حسبتهم ألؤلؤ منثور من تشعشع أنوار الذات وتلألؤ أنوار الصفات والأسماء that these are but reflections of the self 
as we said before, you see yourself minus all the corrupting accumulations that it is seeing the self in its real potential. And that self then becomes a critical partner in the path towards illumination and proximity to the divine. So you encounter the best version, if you will, of yourself. That best version, you will see the potential that you never realized on earth. But it is your dynamic with that self that then will propel you to proximity of the divine. And that's why in Sufi Tafsir, they even say the Wildan are genderless. That these youth are neither male or female. They are you, but without gender. Okay. And they often pause at precisely this is expression. That then if you look what you will really see is I like the way Ahmad Asad translates it as transcendent realm. It's as if saying there is no frame of reference other than to say that the place you will be in is a transcendent realm. In a transcendent realm, as Sufia, as the Sufias tradition maintains, it is inconceivable that in the transcendent realm that you, what you will be engaged in is sex and food and wine. Okay. And then, وَإِذَا رَأَيْتَ No, we read that. عَلَيْهِمْ ثِيَابُ سُنْدُسٍ خُدْرُ وَإِسْطَبْرَقُ وحلو وأساور من فضة وسقاهم ربهم شرابا طهورا إن هذا كان لكم جزاء وكان سعيكم مشكورا. Okay. So, and those blessed will be garments of green, silk, and brocade. Garments of green has again enormous symbolic value in old Arabic. Garments and green and silk is a purified, special, enlightened state. So even in pre-Islamic poetry, when they would say someone wore garments in green, of green and silk, it was, they didn't actually mean that they were wearing garment, green textile, as some modern Arabs think it is. 
because they read this stuff and they think that they were actually wearing green. What they're saying is that the, the, they were, the status of their clothes was a status of a pure person or a truly noble person. Okay. And the other thing is وَسَقَاهُمْ رَبُّهُمْ شَرَابًا طَهُورًا And that Allah and for the in the Sufi tradition I, they pause at this at great length that it is Allah that gives them a purifying drink. Either you take this literally, that Allah will be actually giving them a drink that purifies them, which would difficult to imagine what it would mean. Or that the purifying drink is due, or what purifies them, it, the flow, and in fact they use something very close to what we mean by energy. The flowing power that goes through them, that purifies them of all but the desire to know Allah, is due to a direct relationship with Allah. And that's what Allah... Now, this I'll tie this at the end to the, the whole purpose of the surah. Okay. So then we reach this point. Now notice that Surah Al-Insan doesn't dwell upon the punishments of hell. And that Surah Al-Insan talks about the Abrar and then speaks in symbolic language about what will take place with the Abrar, but it culminates in that Allah quenches them, satisfies them with a purifying drink or a flow of purification. And The eye of that purification goes back to this ayn, this eye, this, this spring, known as sal sabil. And as it's a composite word, as Imam Ali said, which means sal ayn sabil. If if a non-literal translation would be. Set your gaze upon the path. Then it says, then it takes you back. Inna nahnu nazzalna Now it's speaking again to the Prophet and to the through the Prophet to us. We've sent the Quran to you, Tanzila means 
in stages or in segments, not all at once. So we've sent you the Quran. So what? فَاصْبِرُ لِحُكْمِ رَبِّكَ وَلَا تُطِعْ مِنْهُمْ آثِمًا أَوْ كَفُورًا So persevere. Persevere. Hold fast to لِحُكْمِ رَبِّكَ the judgment of your Lord, but here the judgment means to the will of your Lord, to the life that you're in and everything that transpires in this life. And do not follow either an Atham who, an Atham is someone who is not and it didn't say notice kafir it said kafura and as him someone who is a sinner someone who might know what's right is not that they are in a state of constant ingratitude by denying the rights but someone who cons who sins weak or someone who is kafur, someone who is in fact in this relationship of ingratitude. وَلَا is so broad that don't be influenced by people who are either an Athen, someone who constantly errs, or kafur, someone who doesn't understand gratitude. But it doesn't stop there. It says, وَذْكُرْ إِسْمَ رَبِّكَ بُكْرَةً وَأَصِيلًا وَمِنَ اللَّيْلِ فَجُّدْ لَهُ وَسَبِّحْهُ لَيْلًا طَوِيلًا So, constantly be in remembrance of the name of your Lord. Bukratan wa asila. In the morning and evening. And at night, prostrate yourself before your Lord. Wasabihu laylan tawila. And be in a state of dhikr and tasbih, glorifying your Lord throughout the long night. The tenor, the tone of these verses is consoling someone in hardship. So, as you, in fact, come into contact with and interact with the Atham and the Kafur, and the Atham and the Kafur, those who are in error and those who do not understand gratitude and are not grateful, will always seek to influence you, to lead you astray, your attitude, 
is to persevere, to be patient, to hold steadfast, and your salvation is constant remembrance and constant dhikr. And note, which is a, a, a demanding standard, right? Because it is morning, evening, and sujood, and staying up late on tawila, staying up late at night. And then the comment, because understand that the problem with these people who you find so trying the problem with them is that they are so attached to the fleeting life in which they live and they are not mindful of the very serious, heavy, and grief-laden day that awaits them. That day is coming, but so many are just preoccupied with their life. They're in a different universe than yours. نَحْنُ خَلَقْنَاهُمْ وَشَدَدْنَا أَسْرَهُمْ وَإِذَا شِئْنَا بَدَّنَّا أَمْثَالَهُمْ تَبْدِيلًا إِنَّ هَذِهِ تَذْكِرَةٌ فَمَنْ شَاءَ اتَّخَذَ إِلَى رَبِّهِ سَبِيلًا And the comment to this is that remember we've created them we strengthened them in other words, we've given them the energy, the, the, the power, the health to do what they're doing. And if we would have willed, none of them would exist. And none of them would be bothering you. And this is but a reminder so that whomever wants to can take the path to their Lord. And remember, وَمَا تَشَاءُونَ إِلَّا أَن يَشَاءَ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ عَلِيمًا حَكِيمًا That remember that none of them would be capable of doing anything they do if it hadn't been for the fact that Allah allows them to do it. You know, this is, again, the, the coming in and that psychology that might be tempted to say well these people are so disgusting they don't have the right to do it so I'm gonna eradicate them or it is my job to wipe them out repeatedly the Quran comes and time and time again and says that's not your business yeah they might be Athim they might be Kafur they might be in fact as far removed as you can possibly be from the Abrar because the Abrar have been pictured or have been set at a demanding stage, a demanding level. How many of us are among the Abrar? 
But it can't but Allah comes and tells the Prophet and his followers, it is not up to you. Remember that this is but a reminder for whoever wants to take, and it's an individual choice, wants to take the path. Because Allah admits in Allah's grace whomever Allah wills. But for the Dhalimin, the unjust, their accountability is going to be grievous suffering. So we go back and say this is Surat al-Insan. A deep reflection on if you ask what is expected of a human being and what is expected of a human being is an ideal. The ideal is to be among the abrar. Now, to be among the abrar, you must be someone who understands gratitude, the rights of others, including God, your maker, someone who respects their vows, and someone who doesn't put himself or herself ahead of others, especially when it comes to the needy, the orphan, and what is the orphan? It's not the fact that they, it's not the technical definition of an orphan. An orphan is someone who doesn't have caretakers. They don't have caretakers. You have to take care of them. And the Asir. And as we said, the Asir is not just the captive of war, but the captive of debt. Someone who works for you, a servant, for instance, is your Asir. Someone who is in prison is an Asir. And Asir is what we in our modern language call a disempowered human being. And you understand that it is your obligation to go beyond yourself and rid yourself of your material attachments to come to the aid. Now, if you rise to that level, but, sorry, this is right though. Allah understands that that's demanding. So, the ideal prototype is, Allah knows you will be challenged. You will be tempted. You will be resistant. Who is going to resist you? Who's going to tempt you? Who's going to challenge you? It is the Athim, 
those people who sin and they love the company of sinning, people who sin or they think that someone like you is naive and idiotic and stupid because after all, you give away your best stuff. You don't put yourself ahead of others. What type of intelligent, savvy human being is that? That's a loser. And the kafur. What is the medicine? What is your, what is the, how do you handle that? Perseverance and patience. But then, to cling to Allah, that Allah's name is constantly within you, morning and night, and in fact, you persevere, you exert yourself beyond your comfort zone. Notice the theme here is all, it's all for the abrar, is beyond their comfort zone. Because you have to stay up late at night, not watching Netflix, but doing dhikr. Beyond the comfort zone. For those people, ultimately, they deserve the status they attain is as if Allah directly quenches their thirst with They've, they've already rid themselves of the attachments of material things. So they, they, they are already close to Allah and deserve a special treatment and a special status with Allah. So when someone says, what is the purpose of our existence? And you say, the purpose of our existence is to be among the abrar. How many of us will fulfill the purpose of our existence? Very few. But that doesn't matter. What matters is how close you get. Between a kafur, someone who just is a horrible, ungrateful human being who, who destroys the rights of all people, you know, steals everyone's rights. It's a completely egocentric human being. Between that and the, and the abrar is a long distance. The wise human being wants to fall as close to the earmark of the abrar as possible. But the point of life is not simple obedience, technical rituality, so that you barely make it to heaven, even if it's just by a point. The point of life is the higher attainment. So when I'm teaching my child, I don't teach my child, do the minimum. I teach my child there are ideals. And the ideals matter. 
And even if we cannot attain the ideals, we must always aspire for the ideals. Even if we cannot achieve a society that feeds the needy, that takes care of the orphan, that liberates the disempowered, then at a minimum, we must try as hard as we can so when we meet Allah, we say, Allah, you know I wasn't among the abrar, but you also know I've tried my best. And that's why this surah is known as Surah Al-Insan. Now, the Prophet ﷺ is reported to, or this is yet again one of the surah that the Prophet would make a point of, to recite every day, and there are many reports that you would recite it, especially at French. And there are tons of traditions about various companions or successors of Tabi'in that say, that talk about the blessings of Surat al-Insan, that, and you can read endless stories about uh, the, the Sufi master who would recite Surah Al-Insan 500 times a day and the illuminations and enlightenments and how they came, you know, they, they, they got closer to Allah and uh, they, they, became, they, they reached an elevated road. So Surah Al-Insan from the time of revelation throughout Islamic history was recognized as a as one um, as one commentator put put it among the, a, a, a central jewel of the Quran in the Ali al Quran one of the perils of it that it cannot be taught as separate ayat it must be taught as a philosophy as a Quranic philosophy to us human beings. Before I stop, let me just make sure I didn't forget anything. Uh, the the thing the about the tasbih Remember that Allah says to the Prophet in Surah Al Hijr, Allah knows that it weighs heavily on your heart what these people say. So what is the answer? Fasabbih. Tasbih. Long into the night. Okay. And that's it for Surah Al-Nisan. Alhamdulillah. Rabbil Alameen. Thank you so much. This, um, I feel like this surah is just, from beginning to end, it was just so viscerally impactful. Like sometimes, you know, I've said that, you, you know, like we get to a point and I feel it you know, at a certain point, I feel like this whole surah, it was so long, but so, um, so rich and heavy and, and powerful, um, that it's just mind blowing. And, um, 
it's anyway it, it, it's like leaves you speechless so I think we need a moment to kind of collect our thoughts maybe um, get pray Maghreb and then um, go ahead and send your questions through thank you so much this um, if I feel you know like this sort of just captures it all it's like it's hard to imagine now knowing what it has and how you understood it how it could not be but a Mekansura because it just feels so basic. so foundational so basic but um, so rich with the core of, of the faith and, um, so thank you so much I mean there's, there's, um, it, it's hard to imagine that you know when you say that you're you're hearing other tafsir and that it's sad that they don't reach this. I mean, even when you just look at the English translation and compare that to what we just learned, it's, it's such a such a gap. So um, I feel so grateful that we received it today here. Thank you. So, um, okay, we'll take a break, pray Maghrib, and be back, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Again, I um, just want to express just in, intense gratitude because um, this surah, I just feel, was so powerful and rich. And I was thinking, actually, at the break, that, you know, I, I'm very mindful about when we, I mean, in my mind, receive sort of these chapters again. It's kind of like revelations anew for a different time and age, because it's like we're the only ones that are really going back and studying every single chapter and the meaning. And so when we receive this one, 65 surahs in, as opposed to, you know, at the beginning, um, like I actually was thinking that I now with the familiarity that we've developed I think hearing it again is actually really powerful because I know at one time in a different surah you also had said the purpose of creation the purpose of life is but it was a different answer it was something like uh, like what you do or it's the test or it's the some you know someone had responded that it was a little bit anticlimactic. Mm -hmm. um, but in this sense, when you say the purpose of creation or the purpose of life is to be an abrar, that actually, now having gone through 64 previous surahs, holds a much richer meaning than if we had received it earlier on. And obviously a lot of the things that we're, we're taught now, you know, we've heard many times before, but it feels different now. So then that sense, going back to, you know, um, I remember in, in a previous halakha you had also said um, it's possible, you know, there's a disagreement about something coming in and believed to be a Meccan surah as opposed to Medinan surah, but it's possible that it was such an important message that it was both. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if maybe that's, you know, not that it's important, but just the, the idea that um, I feel like that understanding of the purpose of creation and you, you know it was stated so clearly and even the way that you talked about the philosophy of like you know in order to know God you know then also ties in the whole issue of free will and accountability and justice like all of that became so crystal clear as we covered it in this Surah now um, and it built upon the, the understanding that we developed in previous surahs. So, I mean, just to say, you know, even though this was so powerful, I think it meant so much more receiving it after all of the other things we've received previously. So that that struck me um, as I was thinking about it. 
Um, is there a thicker for this, or is the whole sura thicker? It's, um, it's uh, in verse 8 and 9. Verse 8 and 9? Yeah. So thank you again. This was really stunning, and I think um, just takes us to another another place. And the power of being able to encapsulate it in, in a concept um, is much more powerful, I think, now after some time of being more familiar with other sorrows. So, Harpeen, did you want to start us off? so much and once again you outdid yourself with the tuxedo. It's amazing. Uh, years ago I read, um, I have a comment and then a question. Uh, years ago I read something by Dr. Ali Shariati um, that described the human being. In, in Farsi both Adam and Insan are translated as human being. Mm -hmm. And the way he put it uh, very eloquently, he said that Adam is the being, Budan. And mm -hmm. then Ensan uh, is the shodan, is the becoming, and it was amazing how you went through the step by step of how we as human um, can become, as opposed to just be um, an Adam, uh, just a being. Um, thank you so much for um, all the knowledge that you generously shared with us here. Uh, my question is on um, the issue of Nazr and what you had um, alluded to the hadith of Imam Ali salam, that um, naturally it's very unbecoming of him making a transaction as such. I realize that too. But I'm wondering if that actually probably um, has any hold on, you know, the Ahlul Tashayyu having such a strong um, affection with uh, this notion of Nazr. And what are your thoughts and are they really effective? You think? Yeah, uh, the just uh, the uh, first, just to make sure that everyone uh, heard this, that um, um, uh, the um, Ali Shariati was, uh, was his distinction that Adam is is the 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 being the uh, just the 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 physical being in existence and the insan is the becoming of um, what the potential of the being is and. Uh, Ali, Ali Shariati's uh, uh, thought, and a lot of his thought, was was so Quranically permeated. It was it, it emerged from the heart of the Quran, uh, and uh, it's um, it's it, a lot of the the a lot of it dovetails with the you know it it's uh, you. You attain consciousness, but um, to be an insan, um, 
it it is beyond consciousness. It is where to you know it, it is very much like in the in the Western tradition where we say to to attain, attain your humanist potential. Um, but of course, here in the Quran, it, it is such an eloquent statement of anything beyond the, anything that we encounter in, in humanism in the West, and it is it is um, it is it is stated in an amazingly where you know you, there is no in in. In Western tradition, you talk about God as sort of at the beginning as a, as the center of natural law, and then humanism ejects God out of the center. But in Islamic philosophy, there is no way you can eject God out of the center of the humanist Islamic ideal. Uh, the whole notion of abrar is so intertwined with the divine, and there are uh, clear philosophical uh, reasons uh, for why it was possible to eject God out of humanism in Christianity, or at least what secular philosophers believe was possible. But in Islam, it would absolutely the whole thing wouldn't wouldn't um, work. About the nudr, yes, it, it, it um, there are a number of traditions uh, where um, a member of Adilbeit is allegedly, I mean, not many, but a couple. It allegedly makes a, another of one form or another, and and I think when especially when the Surah al uh, the the reference to uh, observe their vows is understood as referring to the uh, supposed nether that uh, is taken about. Uh, Hassan Hussein, radiallahu anhu, you know, then yeah, it becomes sort of it becomes this sort of theological. Um, but does never work. I mean, you know, there's so much, both in Sunni and Shi'i traditions, there's so much written about uh, another. Um, my own take on it, because I, I you know, they're, they're, you get into all types of, is, um, It only should be taken in the most exceptional circumstance, and um, and with a great deal of 
uh, reservations in the sense that you have to understand that then if Allah doesn't do what you want, that you have to accept that as what is best and 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 not insist on your way. Because there is a certain amount of, I always thought about um, a lack of politeness in the practice of another, that you are bargaining with God. If you do this, I do this, which is not is not my understanding of refined akhlaq. The you know if. It's one thing if Allah gives you, you know, you, you're doing du'a and Allah answers your du'a and then you you volunteer to do all these things. But um, the idea of negotiating with Allah in that way has always not sat very well with me and has always been very uncomfortable and and i've quite frankly i've never done it i mean i've i've been tempted to do it at times with a real hardship or you know but then i i just have always felt that it is not appropriate um what is appropriate is to and it, it you know it, what is even appropriate is that if it if it if the if the terms of another occur to me, then whatever way Allah decides the matter, uh, I just volunteer what I had thought of anyway. So whether I got my way or didn't get my way. Um, because the, the um, you know, as the Prophet said, don't say, you know, don't say, if this would have happened, this would have happened, because say, if law is the, the is opening the door to the devil, um, you don't know what's best. And to accept whatever Allah presents as, as say, you know, as, as, as basically saying, well, since you willed it, then it's best. I, I think it's always a better way of dealing with these matters and of course it's challenging because you know when it comes to like illness of a loved one or it's hard but still just echoing grace and parveen sheikh thank you so much um, I love how the surah doesn't dwell on hellfire punishment. No, it's just one ayah, just one verse. It's that you know other surahs can warn, but surah insan. The point of surah insan is just to inspire. You know, just inspire with an ideal. Um, a question is on um, verse twenty-three. Um, yeah. So I mean, this is presumably God or the angels. So right. this is coming from the heavens, and so it's on the nature of shuk. Because if I'm reading it correctly, then God is saying, you know, Sa'yukum, your effort, you know, thanks, it's appreciated. Mm -hmm. So, shukr isn't just something that we have for God, it's actually reciprocal. God has shukr for us. Yeah. So, is, I mean, is that not something that's kind of, you know, a bit unique? You know, we worship God, God doesn't worship us. You know, we fear yeah. God, God doesn't fear us. But if we are grateful yeah. to God, 
And if we do our best, we don't even have to achieve it. We just sat at your comment, it's just your effort. Yeah. God is grateful for you, so there's a reciprocity. No, I'm, I'm actually, uh, um, uh, I'm happy you, you, you asked about this verse because I, I, I didn't stop at it. Um, but it, it, it is worth, it, it is worth stopping at. And, um, um, There are some riwayat that that say, or or opinions. They're not riwayat, but they're opinions of commentators that say that the angels will then say your endeavors are held in gratitude, or that we are that. yeah, the, your your endeavors are regarded with gratitude or held in gratitude. But there is really no reason to believe that it's the angels who are saying this. But rather, is it's a, a statement of a relational principle that... And, and that statement comes from Allah directly, uh, that your endeavors, Allah holds these endeavors with gratitude, or as, as um, God is grateful for these endeavors, which is, as you said, it's very, this is, unique in Islam and this is not the only time in the Quran that this that you have an expression like that but the that that um, which I mean Ghazali says that the, this is um, Yet, among the many indicators that God is not um, a uh, disinterested God and who makes it or doesn't make it, but that God is truly a wadud, uh, is one of the attributes of God, close and intimate. And that God is grateful for the endeavor, for the for the attempt, for the sigh, for the path that you take. And I believe it was Ibn Arabi in Futuhat who, when asked, "Well, what is God grateful for?" and and he says, um, "I believe it was him, but I'm not sure." And he says, well, God is grateful for not having to met the dictates of justice upon you, i.e. not having to punish you. you you've saved God. It, it, not that, you know, God, there's, it's not an effort, but it is the fact that there is no pleasure obtained from punishing you. Um, and the fact that you did good by yourself is something that actually 
God welcomes and celebrates. And the, the, this is actually, inshallah, we'll encounter this in, in, in other parts of the Quran, where the, the, that type of very interesting relation is, is and it is, it is God treats human beings, um, this is my, my perspective, is that in Islam, God treats human beings with respect accountability and consequences is part of treating you according to what you've earned. Respecting a respecting human being is to give them the choice and then to treat them as adults. They do good you you welcome it, you're grateful for it, you, you reward them. And if they make the choice not to do good, then they bear the consequences of their actions. If God is not babying human beings as, as defective information, the idea that, well, you know, human beings need to be saved from their own selves. Um, God, as sort of, even in Christianity, where it goes to the extreme of, of that God must suffer to save human beings from their own follies. Um, but the relationship in Islam is... God is close to you than closer to you than you realize. God is always with you. God celebrates your victories. God is always there to help you. You take one step towards God. God takes ten steps towards you. But ultimately, God respects your choice, better for better or for worse. Um, and that, so yeah, that's Sayyukum um, Mashkura. It's, uh, and it, 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 interestingly, by the way, it affects Muslim culture because um, in, in what has become part of Muslim culture is that when you, you go, console, uh, you, you go con convey your condolences to someone and they'll say Sayyukum Mashkur. Um, or, I mean, the ayah that you're, you're, we're, we're grateful for your endeavors, for your effort. Or if you, in Muslim culture, normally Sayyukum Mashkur is not said, like normally if you go to a wedding, you don't, people don't say Sayyukum Mashkur. Normally that's, normally it's on more somber occasions. But it's interesting that it has entered into Muslim culture. Of course, Muslims still corrupted it a bit because there's, why not say it in a wedding? You know, it's just, we're, grat we're grateful for your, your effort. That's what it means. Um, but it permeated even common culture. Um, although it's usually said in, in more somber um, occasions, like if someone, if you go visit someone who's ill, they, you know, then when, 
people are saying goodbye, they'll say, Sayyukum Mashkur. You know, we're grateful for your endeavor. Um, the idea is that idea of gratitude as a cornerstone of morality. And the fact that Allah even partakes in that by saying, I am grateful for your endeavor, is very significant. Thank you so much, Sheikh. Yeah, I was thinking of uh, similar things that Grace was thinking about, and, and I, I feel that I agree with her that it seems like this surah belongs to a class of the of Meccan surah that were concerned with the individual rather than the later surah that tend to deal with how to begin civil community building and this sort of thing. And um, and oh, as you were talking about the debate whether it's Meccan or Medinian and and the the discussion regarding Asir, I was thinking of other suwar in which. Um, the ayahs seem to be discussing something that's forthcoming and the Muslims can't possibly know. Uh, sometimes it's oh, more yeah. elusive, but yeah. I mean, a clear example would be something as early as Muzemnin when he's talking about, you know, and God knows that some of you are fighting in the path of Allah or will be fighting yeah. in the path of Allah. So clearly something that's very, obviously I know well, that there, so. then obviously there were also concerns on whether that's a Medinan, yeah. uh, you know, verse or not, but it feels quite strong and I was just wondering does that does something like Muzammil help boost this argument here that this is you know because even when you're reading Muzammil it still can be read in a very general sense you know fighting in the in the way of God is is limited mm -hmm. only to physical fighting or when you think when you're thinking about the way that the Muslims were meant to serve God at the time of the revelation um, it, it, everything, the whole, the whole thing was a fight, mm -hmm. in essence. And so, when you're presenting this material, it feels like any type, like as you said at the end, any type of impoverishment or destitution, or that that can be an asiyah for somebody. Mm -hmm. So, I wondered if there was a similarity in that. No, no, you're right. I mean, in Surah Al-Muzammil, there's a reference that is clearly anticipates what will come. And it's we've seen this in several surah in, in the Meccan surah where where it, it's talking about something that clearly and sometimes you know the tradition will treat us to one of these rare situations where it will tell us about the Meccans mocking uh, you know mocking an ayah in the Quran because they they think. Uh, you know, oh, you you guys think you're going to have X, Y, and Z, and so, and that that's one of the you know rare occasions where it's it's actually the enemy, the opponent, helps situate the uh, surah, and um, I think that's why I in in the notes that I mentioned at the beginning that that's why I ended up concluding that or leaning towards the opinion that it's Meccan. Um because the reference to, uh, to the Asir, it could easily fall within the categories of ayat where um, it's saying something that even if it went war cup to the captives, 
just solely war captives. That it's anticipating what's going to happen, and we don't have um, we don't have um, with this in this occasion we don't have you know some riwayah about Meccan mocking the the reference, but we we do have these reports where the Prophet says that someone in your debt is your Asir. And I suspect, if I just imagine what the context would have been, is that I suspect that they probably, in, in Mecca, that he was asked, well, what Asir? We, we don't have war captains. And that the Prophet then elaborated that, well, there's no reason to take, for you to take it so literally that there are all types of situations where people are effectively your asir. And because it's asir, it's not, you know, it's not that uh, it's been used in Arabic to, me, to, to describe other than war captives. This is like Prophet saying that, well, you don't have to take it so literally. Um, and giving it that broader meaning, um, and so and and if you you know if you're thinking as sort of a, like a historian, you'd say, well, probably that elaboration came because people were wondering, well, why is it saying that when we are you know in Mecca persecuted? But I think you're absolutely right on that it is. I mean. He, once you you go through the the surah and you you realize that I mean and and you 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 go through the entire process of that it is saying something so critical about an insan and setting this ideal uh, and then it becomes. I, you, you, you just your heart feels like this is more Mecca than Medina. Um, I'm not, you know, I've tried to delve into why the second generation of interpreters thought it's Medina, but other than the reference to Asir, or because they were leaning towards accepting the riwayah about Hassan Hussein being ill and but and and especially those who said this Medina in the in, in the riwayah that among those who fast it, it, Hassan Hussein themselves fast so they were old enough to fast which if so then it would be Medina and if it's and that especially uh, those who said it's Medina said that they borrowed the wheat that they made the bread from from a Jewish um, neighbor and a Jewish neighbor again would place in Medina but that riwaya is questionable um, the, you know including the borrowing from a Jewish neighbor I mean why would they I mean, no Muslim had a you know had wheat and and um, it was a, a, a type 
there's sort of this type of riwayat after the a number of Jewish converts enter Islam where they we have this um, prototype where a Muslim is always borrowing something from a Jew. You know, whether wheat, whether shield, whether a sword, or horse, and so on. So on. Um, which again, it makes you a bit suspect. The, you know, I'm sure there was some borrowing from Jews, but I don't think it was as extensive as the, the Jewish converts to Islam seem to relate. Yeah, I know. I I think all of that is and and the asir is is not um, you know it's not decisive as some of these uh, commentators seem to think it is. Um, I just want to say something about the point that you made about um, see surah. I think you're absolutely right that. You know, it's gradations because when you, when you, I remember this this um, question where someone said that the answer was all uh, underwhelming and and so on. Is that when Surat al Insan? It's like if you to try to tell someone that the purpose is to be among the abrar without going through the entire explanation of how and why is a fool's errand. And the you you start out with the simple flat answer of well, you know, it, it, life on earth is a test. Well, yeah, being seeking to be among the abroad is a test. It's the test is not the objective. It is a, a higher, more refined point to say that the objective is to come to know your Lord, is consciousness without God is as meaningless as a the birth of a star in the huge universe and the death of a star in the huge universe you know it, if it it just comes and it goes um and yeah sure it might look wonderful it might look spectacular it might do wonderful you know amazing energy whatever but without there being god it's still an empty, vast universe in which things just happen and things just disappear. And when you, un when you realize that consciousness was given so that you aspire towards your divine origin and that God is grateful for you to reach out to your source, your root, it, it, it's a completely different outlook. Incidental to that is the test. Uh, so, I mean, part, I was, um, I remember thinking to myself, 
that maybe I was, because I remember my response to that, and I, I wanted to make a, a, a humbling point, to humble people when they sort of like say, well, well oh, we're just here to be tested. But I remember thinking to myself, you know, it's actually a good point that is, it is underwhelming. <laughs> but, but, you know, you just let it go for leave it to, to a later, later time. on like Surah Taqweer or Surah Waqiyah that usually traditional Tafsir would interpret that as being a description of a final day that actually it's a description of something in this life if there's room in this Surah to look at that in the, in the same way um, because like as we were going through and I'm, look, I'm looking at the language it I don't think it, it says garden at one point. I mean, it does say Jannah, but yeah. for the most part, like especially in the beginning, it says the, the pious drink of a cup, not that the pious will drink of a cup. It seems to, is there room for, for interpretation that this is describing um, the actual state of the, of the abrar and the kuffar or the, the sinners? Um, because I'm also thinking in terms of, of the Halakha and Surah Yasin that it later describes people on this earth as being shackled. Mm -hmm. And that maybe it's not, when it says that we have prepared shackles and chains and a blazing fire, it's not in the sense of present tense versus future tense, but in the sense of I've created these things, but you're the one who puts them on. I've just oh, created yeah, the parameters yeah. for these, these things too. And it might appear to you that you're, you're, because of your existence, because of all the veils, it might appear to you that you're fine and that you're having your needs met because your whole life is about chasing these different things. But the, the reality is, is that the, these pious people that you see who are hungry and who don't have as much and who you are judging, their reality is actually this. And your reality is actually one which is, is shackled and in chains and is in absence of God, which is like a blazing fire. The difference is, is on your death, that veil is going to be lifted and you're going to see it for what it is. But it, to me, this, the, I'm wondering if there's, if there's room for interpretation that it's basically saying, like, this, this is already how it is. This is the reality of it. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Um, okay, it's not in the notion. The the reason I paused, I was looking at, uh, is that I have I did read somewhere that when um, when uh, it says in Atadna. That I did read that these changed chains already exist on earth. That basically they've chained themselves, like they've put these chains on themselves, and that what is 
there was one of the Sufi tafsir, but I don't remember. Maybe tafsir 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 al Um I think it might it probably is. Anyway, that that it it is just the veil is lifted, and then they see the chains that they've placed upon themselves through their 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 commitment to materialism and their their the, the I didn't emphasize this in this tafsir because well I mean on the one hand I, I did say that you know it's the when in the hereafter they see the reality of what they've done to themselves um, so but I didn't carry that theme through Partly because there is so much emphasis on that Kaasan kana misajuha kafura ainan to some masal sabila that it 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 is describing a an ultra reality something that we have no frame of reference to but. I can imagine that if you're going to understand these metaphorically, you could find parallels to, to that state. And in fact, a lot of the um, uh, the um, uh, the, in the Sufi tradition, they'll often describe the the they'll find these as metaphors to stages of development on this earth in enlightenment paralleling paralleling what a continued state of development in the hereafter would be so i think you yeah you're right there 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 is a way and especially that reference to to aglan salasila wa aglan wa and um, the most, uh, um, the, what stands out, like um, Ibn al-Arabi says that um, that so many people, the reason that they become addicted to distractions is because they create the sa'ir in their lives. That, in fact, they, the, the fire is already blazing in their life. And the reason human beings covet more and more material things, they do so just to distract themselves because the fire is under them. And if they, if they, stopped, if they stop consuming, they'll notice that the fire is under them. And so that is all like goes to the same theme that you're suggesting. Um, so yeah, that's a good point. So, um, we have a question from Enjem. Um, Professor Gofrid, let me just say, she wrote something very nice. Um, she really appreciates these halakas. Um, I pre appreciate your words, quote, most of our immorality is because we are confused about what rights we owe others and what rights we feel entitled to. There seems to be a fundamental problem with masses, especially in American culture, heavily focusing on rights talk, grasping the problem. How do we make this more of a mainstream discourse to move away from just rights talks, which is often linked to self-interest, 
towards greater, broader societal and even global human obligations and duties as equally needed. It's almost as if questioning, the questioning emphasis on rights alone has become taboo, but few want to discuss the other side of the coin. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a really good point. Um, what, what's, um, I know that in the field of, of human rights, you know, there is a whole school. It's, it's not as powerful as, because it's not backed up by any, um, you know, big institutions, but there, there's a whole, uh, discourse that is um, th that has a great deal of respectability in scholarship um, that are often called Asian rights or or uh, humanitarian conceptions of rights and the thing that I've always struck me as I as I read this material is it, it the, the, the a lot of the scholars who've challenged the rights Western classic Western rights talk, um, and proposed philosophically justified notions of what they've called Asian rights or communal rights, um, uh, have come from normally Buddhist backgrounds and normally converts to Buddhism. Um, or people of, of, uh, who are, you know, uh, of Chinese or background or Taiwanese background or something like that. And I've always, when I, when I read this, I, uh, you know, I, this material, I always think to myself, I, I wish it was Muslims who were making these interventions. I, I wish that, but it requires, again, it requires that you present your arguments in, in terms that can be engaged scholarly, it, not in terms that are entirely self-referential with a lot of citations to Quran and Hadith. Um, but it, it's again, it demonstrates how the extent to which we have um, not lived up to what our tradition in, empowers us to offer. Um, this discourse should be it's something that is recognized as, an, as, as a Muslim intervention. And um, so it is, but I, I mean, it, 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 making an intervention in the field of rights talk at as, as an academic level is one thing, but just even getting Muslims to understand, and I'm talking about the way we raise our children, the way we educate, to get the, the Muslims who are going to college and becoming intellectuals to get to be excited about the fact that their religion offers something that's coherent, something that's respectable, and something that's honorable, and to get them excited about exploring the meaning of this and the implications of this and not just 
becoming imitators and falling under, you know, it's, um, um, it, it requires that we introduce them to a level of sophistication so that they can feel that this tradition is rich and that they can plow this tradition and that if they plow it, that it in fact will make their efforts worthwhile. In other words, that they're going to plow it and they're going to not hit rock bottom and find an impoverished tradition with nothing to offer because everything that surrounds us from, um, you know, the way Islam is taught at school level to Islam and Islamic centers to, it, it doesn't inspire confidence in our new generations. I mean, uh, they, they, most are, don't even think in terms of, and, and even when we present them, like I can't tell you like how many times I've heard in Islamic centers things like say, oh, the community has rights in Islam, we focus not on rights, but on duties. Well, that's a fallacy as well, because no, that, that's, that's, that's a wrong way of phrasing it. If you focus on duties, and not our rights. Well, one, that's not the Islamic tradition. Remember that Islamic tradition is the one that, before all else, spoke about hukuk al-abad and hukuk al-law and, and so on. And they, they, they phrased it in terms of hukuk. And second is, in the mind of youth who grow up in the society, uh, societies that talk about duties and only duties are totalitarian or authoritarian societies. So they associate that type of talk with authoritarianism or totalitarianism. And so, I mean, I've heard it even from people that I thought, I would have thought they know better. Um, in other words, people that tended to be more sophisticated Muslims. But still, they go to the youth group and they'll say, in Islam, it's all about duties, it's not about rights. Um, or if they talk about rights, they, they, they don't have something beyond that to tell them, to, to tie it into anything more sophisticated and more nuanced than just say, in Islam, everyone has their rights and it's a right person in the right place, and that's what Islam is about. Um, it is part of what, you know, what, what if, if Allah would, if, if I would hope will, will eventually bear fruit is to find Muslims able to engage these issues at a far more, far more sophisticated level and to make real contributions to humanity in real crisis. Um, because we, we live in a world where Milton Friedman's economic models have become the dominant economic models in the world. And if you know anything about Milton Friedman's economics, it has 
nothing to do with it's it's exactly the exact antithesis of Quranic morality and all these the real critiques of Milton Friedman's economic models and their hegemonic influence in the world uh, come from socialist circles Marxist circles uh, Buddhist circles and the Islamic in fact, most Muslim countries have embraced, maybe with the exception of some periods in Indonesian history or some periods in Malaysian history, I mean in modern history, but for the most part, Muslims have just completely, as immoral as it is, so, you know, what do you do in a, in a country like Egypt where, where the government is going around destroying the homes of poor people and in the name of economic development and, uh, you know, throwing thousands upon thousands of people in the streets in the name of the free market and capitalism. And then you still, so many Muslims, and this I, I mean, I, I, just, I realize that this point is a matter of a personal bitterness for me. That then you find so many Muslims still going around defending this type of brutality as somehow consistent with Islam. Um, and you have institutions like Azhar completely silent and or the neon project in saudi arabia where the government comes in and kicked all these people out of their homes to create a free market zone or following the dubai and abu Dhabi model which it's hard to imagine something more un-islamic than the dubai and abu Dhabi model uh i mean you know i always go back to the, we are as good as our most, the mutrafin, the, the, the high class. If the high class spend their money and where their money should go, things will start changing for us. If the high class continue wasting our resources in idiotic endeavors, then we are stuck in the rot we're in for the foreseeable future. If they continue creating substandard intellectual institutions, um, instead, institutions that don't compete, and everyone knows that they don't compete, but we all play these like make-belief games. Uh, let, let this person pretend to be a professor, let this person pretend to be competitive in the open market and we all know that they're not and we all know that it's all you know when it comes to Islam we all live in a world of make-belief um, th that's hard that's very you know um, I think I'm gonna leave this world with a lot of sadness in my heart because of that Thank you. We, we, I know we're, we're pretty much out of time. Um, I just wanted to raise this one question that came out. Um, I hope it's a, a fast answer. If not, then we can, we can hold off. But 
This is from uh, Sura Wakia last week where we talked about heaven and I figured it tied into what we we're talking about today a little bit. But someone um, was asking about the hadith of Um Salama about when you go to heaven and if the man gets oh. back together with all the women he has married in this life or it, and you know the woman has to choose one of all of her husbands as opposed to the man who gets all of his wives. First, is that correct, or did men invent it to oppress women? Um, and because it seems very misogynist, and this is one of the things that this person has been struggling with for years and is a source of doubt. So. Yes, subhanAllah. I mean, you see, th this is where, like this person, if they've been struggling with this for years and it's a source of doubt, subhanAllah, this is where, again, living proof of when I talk about how the problem is, is with our educational institutions. Because if there were proper educational institutions, then it would have been possible for this person to find out very fairly quickly that this hadith attributed to Um Salama, where she asked the Prophet that, uh, okay, a woman married several husbands, so what happens in the hereafter and he says well she picked the husband she loved the most and she lived with him that this hadith occurs in a number of versions several versions it's she picks the husband that she wants to live with and that's it in other versions the hadith continue to go on to say well a woman picks a husband that is her that she loved the most while a man lives with all his wives that the that the man ever married in um in in their lifetime well that addition to the to the to the report um this is a situation where Several hadith scholars said that the, the, the root, meaning the original riwayah about Um Salama asking about husbands and getting a written response, that part, a number of scholars, also it's ahad, also it's singular transmission, but still, they said that it's, it has this authentic chain. The annex, the addition that says, well, a man gets all his wives, that has been pretty much universally recognized as uh, um, as as weak, meaning invented. So, so that's one level, one response. The other thing is that a husband doesn't get to live with the wives, whether meaning in, in, in heaven, whether the wives want to live with the husband or not. So, I mean, a woman makes it to heaven, if she doesn't want, if she doesn't like her husband anymore in heaven, says, I, I don't want to see his face. <laughs> there's nothing, if, there's a lot of evidence that says, well, she's not going to be forced to live with someone in heaven that she didn't want to live with. Um, so that that's and the the problem was that riwaya that says live with all all the way it doesn't qualify it as to whether these wives would want to live with the husband or not. Third, 
I believe that the Um Salama Riwayah itself, where the, the Prophet says, uh, you choose the husband that um, is not of the degree of authenticity that we can build a matter of aqidah, a matter of theology on its basis. Because if, if you, when it comes to aqaid, when it comes to theology, in my school of thought, you need a much higher level of authenticity to rely on a report. Companionship is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when Allah speaks about azwaj, there is a lot of evidence that it is a harmonious relationship between two people. Now, if, and the, the laws that apply to, the, to this world do not apply in heaven. So, we'll put it very bluntly. Let's assume that a woman goes in heaven and she had two husbands that she loved equally. And these two husbands in heaven said, we want to live with this woman. There is no pregnancy. Why, why is it that polygamy, or uh, what is it called when a woman marries more than one husband? There's a term for it. Anyway, uh, there's no pregnancy. There is no children. There is no virginity in the earthly terms of it. So what possible reason can one cite that a woman can't live with more than one husband if that's what they want? That sort of misogynistic logic of no, no, you know, it's improper in this world for a woman to have more than one husband, so it must be so in the hereafter. That's as, you know, and that's because we assume that between husband and wife in the hereafter would be like what we have in this world, sexual relations of the nature that we have in this world. And I think that's a completely unjustified assumption. In other words, you live with your partner in harmony. That, that doesn't mean that, you know, they're going to schedule their date night, you know, every Saturday or, or you know, every whatever it is. And, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's being stuck in the materialistic way of thinking about things, the, the earthly way of thinking about things. Um, so then, if I tell you, there's no sex involved, but just harmonious companionship, you wouldn't have a problem with a woman having more than one husband in the hereafter. It, you, have, you have a problem because you think, oh, sexually. But to superimpose our sexual logic upon the hereafter is quite unfortunate. So don't, don't let that give you a crisis of face. Is it misogyny? Yeah. It is misogyny. The misogyny is all over the tradition because it's a, it's a interpreted through human agents and the human agents that interpreted the tradition were men. And men
can't imagine sharing a woman by the earthly logic. They, they can imagine a woman sharing a man, but they can't imagine a woman share, uh, sharing different men or having different men. And that muscling the hereafter or, fit, or forcing the hereafter into our earthly logic is um, really unfortunate, really an unwarranted. So don't let that give you uh, any type of crisis of faith. It's not worth it. It's it's. Uh, yeah. Okay. Alhamdulillah. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody, for another amazing session. This was really truly special. Alhamdulillah, and I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of the weekend. And inshallah, we will see you on Tuesday for uh, next surah. Inshallah. Inshallah. Salam. Okay. Salam alaikum. Great to see you.